We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Today, I have Craig Mitchell with me. He's the president at the Seattle Institute of Oriental Medicine. He studied his Chinese medicine both in the United States at the American College of Traditional Chinese Medicine in San Francisco and also lived a number of years studying and translating and learning Chinese in Taiwan. He's responsible for the translation of a number of really important books that we use all the time here on herbal medicine, namely the Shanghan Lun and the collected works of Zhao Chuda. And he's been teaching and seeing patients here in the state since 1997 when he returned, and he's been at the Seattle Institute since 2002. So Craig, welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. It's nice to be here. Yeah. So you've been involved with acupuncture education for quite a while now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I'm curious to know how you've seen the educational process change over the years that you've been involved with it. Well, I think that there are a number of important changes that have happened. I remember pretty clearly when I was actually uh, just finishing my master's degree in 1993, I remember talking with somebody at the school, the American College, where I where I was finishing up, about you know what what kind of the future held for people who were practicing acupuncture and Chinese herbal medicine, and whether we would ever see people say you know working in a hospital setting, or how much there would actually be opportunities in the future to interact directly with people in the biomedical community and those kinds of things. And, and obviously, since that time, we have come a huge way uh, towards actually becoming, seeing Chinese medicine or East Asian medicine become a, a more integrated part of the medical community as a whole. And what that has brought with it is there are lots of 
people now who, for example, work in, uh, in hospital settings or in integrated care settings. And so the reason that I bring that up specifically is because I think that that has had a big impact on the training of acupuncturists. So the acupuncturists, the people who are studying uh, in this field today are studying, I think, it's not that they're necessarily doing a, a lot more study of biomedicine, although the hours in that domain have increased certainly since I was in school. But I think that they are, are doing that study more in the context of thinking about themselves as members of this kind of integrated care community, that, that more and more of us who practice acupuncture and herbal medicine are more routinely interacting with people in the mainstream Western medical community. And that has percolated through the, the training paradigms as well, out of, out of necessity, so that students who graduate from the program that, that I run at the Seattle Institute of Oriental Medicine, those students, I think, come out of their training really prepared to have conversations with mainstream Western medical practitioners. And I think that's incredibly important. Right. So in a sense, they've got a foot in two different worlds. One very much in the Chinese medicine world with its own unique way of, of thinking, diagnosing and treating, and the ability to interact with and actually communicate with kind of across the language barrier, so to speak, between Chinese medicine and Western medicine. That's absolutely true. And I think that, you know, we, because we are the, well, in the United States, we're the new kid on the block, right, relatively speaking. Rel yeah, how long would you say... Chinese medicine has been here in the United States. I mean, I know that there's that, that classic story of the reporter in the Nixon era, I can't even remember his name, who had acupuncture, it kind of burst on the scene. Right. But, um, and of course, Chinese practitioners have been practicing it here for, you know, ever since the Chinese came here. Exactly. But in terms of kind of showing up on the map of Western culture here in the West, well, here in America, because it's different in Europe. When would you say it started, and do you have any sense of how it got started? Boy, uh, that's – I'm not really sure that I can answer that question very well. I mean, I remember in 1988, 80, 89, when I started looking at programs for my own training, there were not that many programs around, and there weren't very many that were offering a master's degree at that point in time. Um, the American College where I went to school was one of the few at that, at that point that was actually offering a fully accredited master's program. Um, and so, you know, I think you probably are looking at in terms of acupuncture training programs and acupuncture having a main, uh, uh, not even a mainstream, but a significant influence in the West. You know, I think you're looking at that starting in the late 70s, early 80s, mm -hmm. but really gaining increasing traction in the 20-some years when I've been involved in the field myself. I mean, I've seen just amazing changes in terms of the number of practitioners, the number of schools. You know, we have close to 50 schools in the United States right now. Wow. And we have... Um, you know, thousands of practitioners across the United States in, in virtually almost every state. 
there's at least a handful of practitioners. Right. And most states are licensed at this point. That's true. We're, we're not all the way to all of them, but we're, get, we're certainly getting there. Right. I'm curious, and I, I realize we've known each other for quite a while, but it wasn't until asking the question of when did Chinese medicine kind of start to catch people's attention. I don't think I've ever asked you what drew you into this. What were some of the influences going on? I guess it would be the late 80s for you. Right. That, that drew you to this stuff. Well... I'll give you the uh, abbreviated version of the story for, for myself. And that, that is basically that I was, uh, I had a, an, an active interest in medicine. Uh, and I had since I was a, you know, since I was a, an early teenager for whatever reason. And I had an opportunity to interact with and hear stories from a group of people in the, this would have been in sort of 1988-89, a group of people who were using uh, quote-unquote alternative therapies to deal, it was kind of a, a roundtable discussion about the use of these kinds of non, non-standard from a Western medical point of view treatments for a wide range of ailments. It's just, it was a, um, it's just a, an interesting opportunity that, that came my way. And one of the things that was fascinating about that to me at the time was that there, was, there were a number of people in that room who were HIV positive mm-hmm. and who were dealing with, you know, that's, that, is, that was at that time obviously a really big uh, issue. Huge. And, and there were the, the Western medical treatments were, were still very much in their infancy at that point in time. And so one of the things that was fascinating to me was that there was this group of, of HIV positive patients, and they were all using Chinese medicine. You know, they were all doing acupuncture, they were all taking Chinese herbal medicine, and, and they were just, you know, kind of raving about how, what a great positive influence that it had on their illness trajectory. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, wow, that's, that's kind of an amazing thing. And I, I didn't really have any particular knowledge of anything having to do with East Asian medicine at that point in time. Right. But you saw some effects that, I did. that people were having, real life effects with, with life-threatening illness that was making a huge difference. Exactly. And I, I thought, wow, that's, that's really fascinating. And so I ended up doing some reading and research on my own, and I also actually went and, uh, and, and started seeing an acupuncturist. I was living in Philadelphia at that time, mm-hmm. and uh, I, got to, I got an introduction through one of the people that I met at that roundtable, and nice Jewish boy doing acupuncture in Philadelphia, of course. <laughs> a great tradition of nice Jewish boys doing acupuncture. So, Well, there is kind of a Jewish acupuncture mafia, isn't there? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, and, and through that acupuncturist, I got some more ideas about things to read. And that started kind of opening my eyes to what a deep and rich system of medicine, East Asian medicine, is. And before I knew it, you know, I, I was moving from Philadelphia to San Francisco to start school. Yeah. Wow. That's great. And when you started studying this stuff, did you think that you'd end up 
being in the position that you're in of, of being influential in the education of it? I mean, did you have an interest in education back then as well? I did. I, I remember very clearly thinking about, as I got towards the end of my program, thinking, you know, what am I going to do? What do I want to do? And, and interestingly, I, I never really saw myself as somebody who was just going to uh, set up shop in, you know, I'm going to have my couple rooms for treating patients and I'm going to be a full-time practitioner and that's what I'm going to devote my life to. I never really saw myself doing that. For, and I, to this day, I don't exactly know why that is, Michael, but, but I just, uh, that was just my feeling at the time. And I thought, you know, I'm interested in Chinese language stuff and translation seems like it might be fun and interesting. And I felt an attraction to doing some educational stuff. And I definitely wanted to see patients and do that aspect of things. But I, I was excited at the prospect that I could kind of create a, uh, a varied professional life that would include lots of different things in it. And that's, you know, thankfully, that's, that's actually what I've done. Yeah, well, you have, and you've contributed quite a bit to the field. And, you know, it, it's interesting. There's, there's so many different ways to participate in this. Some people, they're clinicians, and that's all they do, and they love it, and they thrive on it. And there's other people that primarily teach, and there's even people that primarily translate. They don't, they don't even see patients, but they go deep into the language, and they go deep into the culture, and there's, there's many ways to contribute to this. Absolutely. Yeah. So getting back to the education piece for a moment, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people go to school for acupuncture. And a lot of the acupuncture schools also offer some training in Chinese herbs. Yep. And to various degrees, some like Siam, where you are, the, the herbs is completely integrated into the training. And at other schools, somebody may come out with quite a bit less training. Can you give us a little idea of the different levels of training that people might get? And I'm just talking about people that have like an acupuncture license here. But the yeah. different levels, if you go to an acupuncture school and you're studying acupuncture and you might be studying herbs, what's the mix and what do the schools tend to focus on? So, so this is a, it's an interesting question. And I think that I think so. One thing that I'm I'm always surprised when I just recently somebody I was they were asking me about where I worked and I was telling them about about Siam and uh, and they said oh you know it's a it's a master's program I said yeah it's a master's program and and they and their next question was oh is it is it accredited like does it actually have any you know it, does it have any official recognition from you know the Department of Education or something like that and I I just thought. Well, gosh, yes, of course. Like, but but again, that's not necessarily something that people out in the in the world who are not part of the East Asian medical community necessarily actually know that we have an accreditation commission. Uh, it's called the Accreditation Commission for Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine, ACOM, and they are an accredited accreditor. So, in other words, they have accreditation through the Department of Education. And, uh, and there are some guidelines from ACOM for the length and the study hours that are required for somebody to go through an acupuncture program. 
Mm-hmm. And we can talk a little bit about those numbers if, if you want to do that. Maybe we'll get to that a little bit later. I think what I'm most curious about is many people go to acupuncture school just to learn acupuncture. And some go to learn more broader aspects of the medicine, including the herbs. Yep. Uh, so, so what's my question here? I think my question is... Uh, Let me jump back in for a second and, and explain one thing which I think is important for people for sort of the lay population to understand. Mm. And that is that what we have in the United States right now is a system where the licensure for acupuncturists is a state-by-state licensure. So the licensure in one state is not necessarily exactly the same as licensure in another state. They can actually be quite different. Yes, they can be quite different. So as as an example... In California, they have a licensure which says that in order to get licensed in California, you have to have gone to a program that does the acupuncture and herbal training as a complete set. You can't actually get licensed in California if you have not gone through a program that does an integrated training in acupuncture and herbal medicine. So you have to learn both to get licensed there. Yes. And you can't even... As far as I understand, you cannot even go to a program, say, and do your acupuncture training first and then go back and get a herbal certificate or something like that, <clears throat> excuse me, and get licensed in acupuncture in California. You have to do them as a combined program. Mm-hmm. But lots of states don't do that. Lots of states have, under their acupuncture license, they, many states are simply silent on the question of Chinese herbal medicine. Or... Like what they've done in Washington State, where I practice, is they have said they just recently re uh, reconfigured our practice law so that they are they actually now officially include Chinese herbal medicine in the scope of practice of practitioners, licensed acupuncturists in Washington State. But they did not specify any particular educational standard to go with that scope of practice. So that means somebody could go to a school in California or go to a school that goes by the California standard of teaching it in integrated fashion Mm -hmm. and have learned a lot about herbs. Or maybe someone has just taken some weekend workshops or, you know, a couple of semesters and uh, because it's under the scope of practice and the law is basically silent you may not know the training of the herbalist. Exactly. So what would your recommendation be on finding out what that is so that, you know, someone who's interested in getting some Chinese medicine, acupuncture, maybe herbs, well, herbs in particular, yeah. uh, what would they be looking for in a practitioner? Personally, I think that there is nothing wrong. If, you know, if you're a patient and you're looking for a practitioner, to me, there's nothing wrong with asking a potential practitioner a few questions about what their training was. If somebody has gone through an oriental medicine program, like the one at at my school or like many of the schools offer, if that program is, is an accredited program, that means that they have done a minimum of 450 hours of study that specifically relate to the use of herbs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's the ACOM minimum standard number of hours 
And that is at least a starting point, right? Um, if somebody has gone to a school where they, where they focused solely on acupuncture, then, then there is no requirement that they have any exposure to herbs at all. Now, some of the schools will do a little bit of herbal training, even for acupuncture students. We actually have an acupuncture-only program at Siome as well, and we do that. We do a little bit of kind of an introduction to herbs for them so that they have some orientation to that material. But I think it's fair if you think that you might be interested in taking Chinese herbs as part of your treatment, I think it would be fair game to talk with your potential practitioner about, hey, you know, what, what is your training exactly? And, you know, ours don't tell the whole story for training, but they do give you at least some kind of a sense of, of what your practitioner's background is potentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of, the, some of the experience that they might have been exposed to. And generally speaking, time spent studying something, if you're paying attention, will usually translate into some knowledge and skill. Absolutely. I've got a question. There's a lot of folks, when they call my clinic, they'll often ask me what kind of acupuncture I do. Mm. And, you know, I've been at this long enough that I can't even tell you what kind of acupuncture I do because (laughs) I've been (laughs) exposed. I mean, it's hilarious, isn't it? I've been exposed to a number of different kinds. So I've got a few different sort of streams of information plus 15 years of clinical experience. You know, and so the, the acupuncture I do at this point is, is kind of my own conglomeration. Sure. But there's, there's different schools of thought, mm-hmm. and there's different techniques, and there's different ways of looking at acupuncture. You're the president of Siome. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the mainstreams, schools of thought of acupuncture, that people might run into and how they differ. Okay, so yeah, this is a very this is a uh this question leads us into a minefield of different schools of thought and conflicting perspectives and I'm going to try and navigate that gently because people oftentimes practitioners are very oftentimes are very attached to the style that they that they do. And I understand that. And I'm, I'm going to attempt to sort of just give some overview, some thoughts, and some maybe a little bit of guidance about some of the terms that people are likely to run into. Ah, that would be helpful. You know, often there's a languaging that makes sense to us as members of the profession. Mm-hmm. But, you know, from the outside, it may, I don't know, is it marketing or, you know, what, are, right. yeah, what, what do these things actually mean? right? Why is a Ford better than a Chevy anyway? (laughs) Exactly. So I think an important starting point for anybody who is new to this field and is maybe looking for a practitioner, an important starting point is to understand that in, in Asia, in China and Japan, Korea, there are, there is not one system. There has never been one system of medicine that we could term acupuncture or that we could term Chinese medicine or anything like that. I mean, it, it has always been, and I'm talking historically going all the way back to the, to the beginning, to the earliest records that we have of, you know, of anything relating to Chinese medicine. 
it has always been a system that is mixed with all kinds of different perspectives. And one of the very, I think, one of the important differences between Chinese or Asian cultures and, and generally the trajectory of Western culture is that in China particularly, there has never been any kind of an attempt to go from the many to the one. I think there is often an idea in the West that as we go along and we do something, whether it's you know, in the field of medicine or anything else, there's a kind of searching for the truth and a winnowing out of the things that don't seem to be true any longer and letting go of those things and then moving forward, right? Yeah, there's like one right answer and the goal is to find that one right, true, gold standard answer. Exactly. Yeah. And in the field of East Asian medicine, that has never been the way that people have approached the medicine. And so you have very much a system that is inclusive, heterogeneous, sometimes quite chaotic, and in conflict with its pieces oftentimes. And not only, I would say, is that not something that people within our field generally, I mean, I'll just speak for myself, I don't view that as a problem, I view that as a strength yes. of the medicine. Yes, it brings an incredible plurality. Exactly. And incredible strength with all these differing points of view. And if you, you know, if you talk to students in in my program, they will talk about how confusing it can be because one of the things that we do in our school is we basically through the design of the curriculum, we force our students to deal with that chaos and to work within different paradigms and to struggle with making sense of how perspectives on a given patient can be so different from practitioner to practitioner. We feel like that makes our students better practitioners when they, when they get out into practice. I think that perspective is an important starting point for anybody who is entering, you know, thinking about getting acupuncture, thinking about getting herbs, that you need to understand that right off the bat. Um, if you start looking at people's descriptions of their own practices and what kind of acupuncture they do, you'll start seeing terms like five-element acupuncture, traditional Chinese medicine, TCM, or TCM acupuncture. You might see people say that they do Chinese-style or Japanese-style or even Korean-style acupuncture. So maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, maybe we use as a starting point the Chinese-Japanese kind of dichotomy, if, if we could call it that. I mean, to me, it's fascinating because there are some deep, deep underlying principles that I would say they share. Absolutely. And yet the way that you see the practice unfolding, you know, it's like a lilac has a taproot into whatever it has a taproot into, and an oak tree has a taproot into its deep nourishment, and yet you get two very different things manifesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so tell us a bit about the difference that we would see between the Japanese and the Chinese. Yeah, so I think, and I'll apologize in advance to any acupuncturists who are listening, because any description that I will 
provide is going to be of necessity arbitrary and limited. So with that recognition, I think that in general, when someone describes themselves as a Chinese-style acupuncturist versus a Japanese-style acupuncturist, I would say that what you would experience in general as a patient is Chinese-style is more likely to be a uh, stronger sensation of you know the needling sensation itself often will be stronger. Mm-hmm. The needles will often be inserted more deeply, and they will oftentimes be manipulated more once they are in the body. And I I don't want to give the the wrong impression. I mean, I could imagine someone listening to this podcast and hearing that and thinking, oh God, that. That sounds horrible. I, I would never want to do that. But in fact, what, what many people experience, I mean, I, I really learned, I think, I would say, as a Chinese-style acupuncturist, is that for many patients, the, the sensations of acupuncture, while they can be strong sensations, they can also be, what's the right word, they're not necessarily negative sensations. Right. They can be powerful. They can be strong. They can be. They can create lots of interesting change in the body. And they can create some really unusual feelings in the body. Exactly. And, and not unpleasant. I I often get asked the question, "Is this going to be painful?" And my usual reply is, "It's frequently with sensation, but I wouldn't call it pain." Mm-hmm. And everybody will have a different experience. And and let's just see what your experience is. Right. And sometimes even with strong stimulation, there are some people with certain conditions. Oh, it's it's just like the right thing for them. Their whole body suddenly completely relaxes like it hasn't relaxed in months or years. Yes. And, you know, in my own practice, I have had patients who I am like you, Michael. I mean, I've been in practice a little more than 20 years now. And I also have a very eclectic style. I do sometimes very light needling and sometimes heavier needling. And I have had patients who will say to me, you know, they come back in and they'll say, well, you know, that last treatment that you did was very intense. It was very strong. And, and while I don't, I didn't completely enjoy it at the time, it's the best effect that I've gotten from a treatment so far. So will you do that again? You know, like I, I don't even really want to tell you that because it wasn't the most fun while I was on the table, but boy, it sure did relieve my, you know, I have a 50% improvement in my range of motion in my arm. And that's really important to me. So let's do it again. Well, people are looking for results. And even if you have an acupuncture treatment, and it's extremely strong and perhaps uncomfortable, it's probably not nearly as uncomfortable as the thing you're suffering from day to day every time you move your arm. Well, that's completely true. Yeah. 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 Okay, so that's the, that's the Chinese. What would the Japanese treatment look like? So to oversimplify a little bit, the Japanese is going to tend to be lighter style of needling, less intense stimulation, more superficial acupuncture, even to the point where in certain Japanese styles, the needle is not actually inserted into the skin at all. It is maybe even just held at the point, in contact with the point, or in some cases, even just off the point. There is a vast range. 
And some Japanese acupuncturists will needle more strongly or deeply, but I think in general, if you want to draw a comparison between the two styles, I think that that is oftentimes a, a, a reasonable distinction to make. Yeah, that sounds kind of the way I think about it too. Although I would, I would want to add, because I've done a bit of the Japanese contact needling as well, mm-hmm. where the needles don't go into the body. Yep. And in fact, it's just, it, you know, it's more like a toothpick size thing, usually made out of a precious metal. I have had people asking me, what are you doing? Because this is really painful. Mm, yeah. They say I have incredible sensation at this point. It's like, what are you doing? And it's like this needle's not even in your body. But sometimes the body will have a very strong reaction to to the what seems like a very light stimulation. Well, that's exactly correct. And so there is the issue of how deeply does the needle go in? How much is the needle manipulated? what size needle is used and all those things. And then there's just the question of what the body's response is to that, whatever the stimulation is. And you bring up the, the issue of, you know, using a, what is oftentimes what's called a teishin. Yes. Which is a, this kind of, as you described, like a metal toothpick, uh, which might be a little, a little bigger than that or a little smaller. I mean, there's a range of them, but they are they are not inserted into the body. They're, they're used to, to touch a point or to even sometimes uh, stroke along a channel pathway or things like that. And I just want to mention for people who are you know, nervous about needles, those kinds of things can be a nice introduction to what does it mean to have this kind of, of treatment done without having to actually have a needle inserted. Yeah, it's good for kids too. Yeah, I was just going to say that. It can be a, a really nice introduction for kids. And the funny thing is, I, uh, my wife, Marguerite, who is also an acupuncturist, is treating some little kids right now. She has a few in her, in her practice. And, and oftentimes, they will start asking for, for that. You know, they'll come in and say, oh, do this do the thing where you, where you stroke my skin or do the thing where you use the little metal thing on my back or, you know, they start, they like it and they actually kind of get into having that treatment. And so it can be a really, a very gentle, but quite effective way of treating younger, either really small kids or, or even, you know, eight, nine, 10 year olds, you can still, still work with that. So. Yeah, it's good stuff. What about some of the other kinds of acupuncture? There's, it seems like there's a number of different microsystems. You can use the hand, you can use the ears. What about those? And how do they work anyway? That seems kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, that does seem weird. So the, the Korean system, one of the things that the, that the Korean acupuncture community has really specialized in and developed extensively is, is hand acupuncture. And so there is a whole, you know, from that point of view, there's a whole representation of the body on the hand. And uh, I don't have much training in Korean hand acupuncture, but, but it is similar to the ear or the scalp in, in that, or even there is actually an eye acu- or a, a, an orbital acupuncture system where you do points around the eye. And, and in any of these systems, they all are based on the idea that you can 
find areas on any of those places in the body that represent all the different areas of the body. So in Chinese medicine or East Asian medicine, we've kind of established that through acupuncture points, which are distributed around the body, we can affect, in some cases, quite distant locations to where the acupuncture point itself is. So these microsystems, in a way, have just taken that to uh, maybe to its logical conclusion, which is that you can use a point in the palm of the hand to affect one of the internal organs. Right. Or you could even use a point in the palm of the hand to treat the bottom of the foot. Exactly. Do you think there's anything that people should ask the acupuncturist if they're thinking about going for acupuncture in terms of the kind of treatment they do, or should they be asking about experience? What, what if someone's brand new to this and they're trying to figure out who to see? Have you got any suggestions about that? That's always an, an interesting question to me. It's and a I tough have, question. It is a tough question, and I have family members in a few different places in the United States, and sometimes they will say, hey, you know, I'm having X, Y, and Z problem, and would acupuncture be good for that, and how should I find somebody? And, and generally, you know, I mean, you know this as well as I do, Michael. If I had a choice between seeing a practitioner who just graduated last June versus seeing somebody who's been out in practice for 15 or 20 years, well, I'm going to lean towards the person who has a bit more experience, right? I mean, that's kind of, that's just the reality, I think. Well, it certainly is for Chinese medicine. Yes, absolutely. Having said that, I, not to be uh, overly proud, but, you know, I think that students that are graduating from my program, I would, I'd put them up against a practitioner with significantly more experience than they have because I think that our students develop incredible skills when they're in my program. Well, that's because they survive your program. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Um, so I think experience isn't, isn't everything, but I think it is an important thing to understand. Yeah. And I think that it is useful, I think, to talk with a potential practitioner to find out what kind of training did you do, if herbs are important to you in terms of you know, the kinds of things that you're looking for in your treatment, then, then that's an important question to ask. I think it's, for me as a patient, I want to know if, you know, are you an eclectic practitioner? Do you do more than one style of acupuncture or do you primarily focus in just on one thing? Do you have any areas of specialty? Do you or do you feel that in your own practice that you're particularly good at treating digestive system disorders or upper respiratory conditions? Or are you big focused on musculoskeletal problems? Yeah, those are great questions to ask. People often ask me those questions, actually, and I, it gives me an opportunity to tell them what I'm pretty good at treating. I mean, for whatever reason, like digestion. That's, it's like, great, bring me a digestion problem. I love those. Right. right. But bring me certain other kinds of problems. Sometimes I'll refer people out to other practitioners. Sure. Because I just haven't quite got it figured out. Right. Yeah. And some people just are naturals at, at certain things. Well, and, and you know, I think, I mean, for myself in my own private practice here in Seattle, uh, we have an embarrassment of riches in Seattle in terms of the practitioners that are available. So if someone comes to me, 
a new patient comes to me and says, hey, I, I got your name, saw you, you know, whatever, on the internet or from a friend, and person is, you know, dealing with infertility. It's very unlikely that I'm going to see that patient because there are a half a dozen practitioners that I, that I know of in Seattle who have spent the last 10 or 15 years doing nothing but infertility. Yes. So it doesn't really make sense for me to see that patient and to kind of struggle to figure out what to do and maybe I'm going to get it right and maybe I'm not. And, but, you know, why, why do that? I have great colleagues. I love to refer to colleagues who have decided to specialize in something. I think that that can be incredibly helpful. I think in a lot, in many areas of the country, you may not have the, that much choice. And, you know, I had this experience with, with my brother, actually, and he was looking for an acupuncturist where he lives, and he, and he really had maybe one or two to choose from. And so then it was really a matter of, of going and seeing that practitioner, giving it a try, and seeing how that went. And that's oftentimes, I think, what people end up needing to do. Okay. So you, you just used a term, give it a try. And, and I hear this a lot from folks. They think about giving acupuncture a try, or they say that they've tried acupuncture. Yeah. What would you call a fair trial of acupuncture? Because a lot of people think it's magic. And on occasion, it has results that do seem magical, right? right. If you've right. had shoulder pain for a year and you walk out without shoulder pain, it seems like magic. Yeah. We know it's not. We know it's medicine but it seems like magic. And so it's easy to get into this idea that, oh, one or two treatments, and of course, everything's going to be fine. Right. Often that's not the case. And also, you know, you need to make sure you've got a good fit with your practitioner. So what would be a good trial of acupuncture? How many times should you try it? Should you, how many times should you be treated before you make a decision, yay or nay? I think that that, that is a conversation that you have to have with the practitioner. Because if you come to me and you say, I have had chronic low back pain. I've had it for 20 years. I, you know, I fell off a ladder when I was, when I was in my early 20s. I've never, my back's never really been right since then. And I'm struggling with this. Can you help me? I'm going to ask probably in that case that you give me... Mm, maybe four to six treatments over a course of a month or two before you come to a, a decision about whether or not acupuncture is going to be helpful for you. I think in that amount of time, I should be, it's not that, it's not that that person's low back pain is necessarily going to have resolved. Let's be clear about that. But it's that in that length of time, in my experience, if I'm going to be able to help you, you will know it at that point. Right. Right? You will have had a moderation of the symptoms. You'll have had more pain-free days or you'll notice that you're able to cut down on your ibuprofen from eight a day to two a day or whatever it is. And so then you go, oh, okay, well, this is clearly helping and I'm moving in the right direction. If you come into me and you say, uh, you know, two days ago I got a cold or I have an upper respiratory infection – well, I sure hope that you don't need to wait six weeks before you know whether I'm going to be able to help you or not, right? I mean, that should happen quickly. Acute things should clear up sooner. 
Exactly. So, you know, I think it's, that's a conversation to have with the, with the acupuncturist that you're seeing. And, and I think it's also important for patients to understand that I think somebody else on one of your other podcasts said that, you know, healing, especially from a longer term illness is a process. And it's, it's usually a process that's going to include not just what the acupuncturist is doing, but also what the patient is doing. Dietary changes or exercise or lifestyle adjustments or whatever. In fact, that's often a huge part of the healing. I, one of the things I love about practicing this kind of medicine is I'm not doing something to someone. Mm-hmm. I'm working in a partnership with someone. Yes. And, and it's wonderful to watch the things that people discover for themselves that help them to feel better. Hope you're enjoying the show. I'd love to know about what topics are of interest to you. If you have a health concern, or if you want to know specifics about how acupuncture can help to promote vibrant well-being, visit the website at www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and send an email. One thing that I wanted to pick up on that you said is talking about the relationship between the patient and the acupuncturist and that you want to find somebody that you click with kind of. I think maybe you, maybe you use those words or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you and I also have a, a slightly, maybe a, just a slightly different take on that a little bit. I do think it's important that you feel some... Um, what's the right word, that you, you feel like a practitioner with whom you've chosen to work has some understanding of your situation, that the practitioner has a, uh, you know, they don't rub you the wrong way. But I also think that it is important, when a patient comes to see me, it is likely that I'm going to spend somewhere between an hour and an hour and a half working on that patient depending upon the, you know, could be 45 minutes, could be an hour and a half, it depends. That's a lot of time for a medical practitioner to be with a patient relative to what we generally experience in mainstream Western medicine. And so there is a very natural kind of relationship that starts to develop between practitioners and patients in our field. That, I think, is a natural outgrowth of the way that we practice medicine. And that can be very powerful and very helpful. And it also can create a situation that, personally, I think is not always helpful for patients, where the patients maybe start to feel... Like, I've heard patients say, I didn't want to switched to a different practitioner or I didn't want to stop treatment because I was afraid of hurting so-and-so's feelings. Ah. Because I run this school program and we have a teaching clinic, I've talked with patients who are seeing an intern in our teaching clinic and they said, well, so-and-so, this intern was so kind to me and so nice and caring. I'm not really getting much help, but I really didn't want to 
you know, I didn't want to stop treatment because I didn't want to hurt his or her feelings. And I'm always very quick to say to those patients, not that you should be cruel to your practitioner. I'm not, I'm not saying that, of course, but, but that you, that's not what it's about. Right. You should judge by the results you get. Exactly. Yeah. You, you have to stick to that. And you can be very nice to a practitioner and say, listen, I really appreciate all the care and the attention that you've provided for me. And, and I've reached the conclusion that this is not either the right modality or this just isn't the right setup for me. And thank you for your help. And I'm going to move on. While that is difficult, I think it can be very difficult to do. I think it's really critical for patients to take ownership of their treatments in that way and make a decision based on, am I getting results? Am I not getting results? And then that's the sole criteria upon which you should make a decision about whether or not to continue treatment. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think there's a responsibility on us as practitioners that if we're not seeing some traction with the issue, it's up to us to bring that up. Absolutely. And talk about that and, and maybe find someone who, who would be able to help more. Yes. Yeah, without, again, without hurting our patients' feelings. Because I've, I've discovered through that process of wanting the best for my patient, sometimes they'll feel rejected if I suggest they go somewhere else. Yes. So, yeah, it's, it, that piece is a sticky wicket and, you know, for both practitioners and patients. Well, and I, and I have a number of people with whom I you know, colleagues of mine in the Seattle area who don't necessarily do, the, they don't practice acupuncture, they do some other modality. And very commonly, I will refer a patient, I'll say to the patient, you know, I think that you would be helped by seeing this osteopath or this person who does visceral manipulation or something else. Mm -hmm. And and then oftentimes what, that, what those other practitioners will do is they will treat the patient for a while and they may well refer the patient back to me. Yes. Yeah, I've, I've got a group of people that I will often refer to here when I don't feel like I'm getting traction. And, and sometimes we'll share patients because there's a piece that I can really help with, but there's a piece that I just can't get it. And another practitioner, they've, they've got the stuff that, that just seems to help. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah. Wanted to get into here, you know, a lot of our listeners, some of them may have been to an acupuncturist. Some of them are just considering it. That's why they're listening to this today. When someone goes to see an acupuncturist, what can they expect in a visit? I mean, this is, you know, they're probably not going to go and, and have their blood pressure checked and, and get themselves weighed like you do at a regular conventional doctor. What can people expect when they go to see an acupuncturist? Well, I think, again, let me preface this by saying that the practice of acupuncture is very varied. And so there, you know, individual results may vary. But it's interesting that you talk about blood pressure because I think if a person is listening and they have problems with hypertension and they go see an acupuncturist, they, the acupuncturist might very well take their blood pressure. Most acupuncturists are trained to do that and certainly might do that as part of an initial intake or even an ongoing visit, they might actually track the blood pressure in their office. But your point is well taken, which is that it's usually quite different than what would happen in a mainstream Western medical office. So 
what I can tell you is, uh, how about if I tell you a little bit about what it would be like in my office, and this will maybe give you a general idea. That sounds good. Yeah, tell us about what you do when you see a new patient. So when a patient comes in, I will have, they all have brought a bunch of paperwork for me. And I generally will put that paperwork in, you know, health history, informed consent, all those kinds of things. I oftentimes will just put those papers into a file folder and not look at them at all at the beginning. And for me, I often do a significant amount of physical exam work before I have talked with the patient at all. So I will do things like feel the abdomen, feel the pulse, take a look at their tongue. And there are a number of different, basically, techniques that involve palpating different aspects of the body in order to gain whatever information that I can from my hands before I have any real information about what the patient's complaints are. Right. So you're checking to see what the body has to say before you engage your mind. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I know not everybody does that, but you certainly will find some practitioners who will start that way. And so then that maybe might take, oh, I don't know, it could be 10, 15 minutes, depends. And, and then I will generally sit with the patient and have a a conversation with them about what their complaints are. And I usually will start with the patient's chief complaint and really get a full picture of when did it start and how severe is it and what are any things that might make it better or worse and all of those different questions that we might ask. And then one of the things that I think is a real strength of, of what we do is that I will then typically spend a significant amount of time with a patient kind of fleshing out what are the other aspects of their whole health picture. So even if somebody doesn't have digestive system complaints, I will ask them about their food intake, about their bowel movements, about whether they have any bloating or gas or reflux or anything relative to the digestive system, I'll go through all those questions with them, even if that's not an area of concern for them. Because it actually might be an area of concern. They just may not realize it. That's exactly right. Yeah. And it, even if it's not something that is, a, is of significant concern, differences in, for example, well, just to give you one simple example, some people no matter what is going on in their life, they never lose their appetite. You know, they, they could have the worst day possible. When they get home, they are going to have dinner and they're going to have a hearty appetite for it. Yes. Other people, they have a rough day at the office. They, you know, something, they, they get into a little fender bender on the highway and they have a little, you know, a big problem with that. They totally lose their appetite. They have no interest in food and they don't eat. Well, that's not a problem right? But it does give me information about the way the patient's body works. Yes. And the thing about that for me, and this is one of the beauties of this medicine, we're not only looking for the areas where there's trouble, we're looking for the areas where there's strength. 
mm-hmm. because we can work off the strength just as much as we can work at going at the things that are weak. And as I think you've talked about on previous episodes, the answers to all of those questions start, they allow us to begin the process of building a picture of a patient that tells us the most likely kinds of treatments, whether they be acupuncture or herbal or body work or whatever, that are the most likely to be helpful for that person. And for me, the the way that that works the best is if I can really round out a full kind of three-dimensional view of the patient, that gives me the greatest likelihood of being able to choose wisely in terms of the treatments that I'm going to suggest. It takes some time to do that, doesn't it? It does take time, especially on the first visit. Mm -hmm. And so after the interview is finished, and I will at that point probably have a pretty good idea about what I want to do to start with. And again, in my office, the most likely thing that would happen at that point is that you would be lying down on a treatment table, on a basically a massage table, and you would get some acupuncture at that point. Now, the other possibility is that I, that I might choose to start doing some massage, which in Chinese medicine we refer to as tui na, and which is just a Chinese style of medical massage, but there's lots of different styles out there. But So it could be that you get some massage therapy first, plus acupuncture, or, or maybe you get acupuncture first, and then there's always a question about how long am I going to have to be on the table for. And again, that is variable. It's, it's variable between practitioners. It's variable for me in my office. It's variable between treatments and the patients that I'm working with. So I would say on the short end of that, you might only have the needles in for 10 minutes. On the long end of that, you might have the needles in for 30 or 40 minutes. I would say probably on average, you know, 15 to 20 is pretty, is, is pretty common, but it can be uh, very variable. And typically then after the acupuncture treatment, after the needles are withdrawn and, and any body work has been done that's going to happen, then at that point pretty much I try not to do much of anything after that because usually the patient is, you know, they may have taken a nap on the table They may be, oftentimes people are in a slightly altered mental state when they get up off the table. They're deeply relaxed. And so I try to minimize anything else that happens other than that, maybe paying a bill and setting up a next appointment that's required. So that's sort of a typical session, somewhere in the neighborhood of an hour to an hour and a half. And if I'm going to prescribe herbs for somebody, then that's something that they're picking up at another time in general in my practice. I see. From my training and from the various acupuncturists that I know, that it, it sounds pretty similar. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, of course, there'll be variations depending on the kind of training and, and, the, and the way that a person practices. I think it's probably pretty safe to say that for, for most practitioners, plan on spending a little time there. Sure. And expect them to ask you about things that you would not usually expect them to ask you about. Yes. Right? If you're coming in with headaches, yes, definitely expect them to, to ask you about your bowels and your sleep. And, you know, if you're a woman, your menstrual period. Getting that full picture is so important for this medicine. 
Yes, that is true. I agree that sometimes it's confusing to people when, you know, they say, I came in because I have migraines and why are you asking me about my bowel movements? Or why do you care whether my sleep is good or not? That doesn't have anything to do with my headaches. And of course, as you know, Michael, everything has to do with everything. And, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and so we, we have to try and create this whole, a whole picture of a person. And that means we're going to be asking lots of questions that would be very unusual in a mainstream Western medical setting. Yes. Well, you know, the flip side of this is when people come in, let's say they come in for headaches. We're just talking about that. And that's the thing that they're focused on. And yet, sometimes they'll come back and they'll go, you know, my headaches are, you know, X, Y, Z, but those hot flashes I was having, they're gone. Right. 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 Oh, what did you do to hunt my hot flashes? Well, because you can't touch one thing without touching everything. Yes. And the system wants to be in a homeodynamic state of health. Yes. And so it'll find its own way into that with a little bit of encouragement. Sure. And so the things that they didn't come in for didn't even know was an issue sometimes just change and that's why it seems like magic as well even though it's not unfortunately i've had the experience it's a little bit embarrassing i have to say i've had the experience of having a patient who comes in and they say well no you didn't really help me with my headaches at all but i you know i didn't realize i was having abdominal pain all these years and that's gone you know <laughs> And I'm thinking, well, geez, I wish I could help you with your headaches too, you know. And sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. But you're absolutely right that when you start interacting with the system as a whole, which is, which is hopefully what we're doing, there can be widespread change that happens. Yes. And it is a humbling practice. Well, that's for sure. Oh, it is a terribly humbling practice. Yes. yes. I was just going to say, for me, and I've heard this from other practitioners who are senior to me, it seems that the longer that I practice, the, I feel as though I know less and less. And I'm not quite sure how that works, but it, it, maybe it's that as the years go by, I understand a little bit more about the complexity of the human body and about how challenging it can be to interact with and what, what a big, vast world it is out there in terms of the kinds of things that people can have and experience. And so that ends up sort of leaving me with a feeling like, boy, I, I don't know very much. <laughs> I wouldn't know anything about that. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, I found this with studying Chinese. You might have too, that the, the more I was learning, the worse I felt like my Chinese was getting. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think this is true with a lot of areas of life. and It is humbling. It is humbling. No doubt about it. One last thing thing I want to ask you about. Um, and again, because you're, you're in the field, especially of the education, and uh, you, you have a particular perspective that way. Like we were saying, 50, 60 years ago, nobody even heard of acupuncture. And now you can go, depending on the state you're in and the laws and, and uh, scope of practices among various professions, you can see acupuncture advertised in lots of different places, and yet those practitioners might have very different levels of training, right? You, you might have yes. MDs that are doing it, or chiropractors, or even you know, other kinds of practitioners. Can you tell us a little bit about the training that a licensed acupuncturist gets? Somebody like would 
graduate from your school and how that compares with some of the other practitioners that might be offering, I'm going to put this in quotes, acupuncture, or maybe I should say treatment with thin needles. Yeah, so obviously this is a very contentious issue and it gets into issues of scope of practice and you know professional boundaries and all those kinds of things. And I think what I can safely say is that if, you know, let's just take a look for a moment at the minimums that are provided by the Accreditation Commission for acupuncture programs. So minimum in those programs, it's three academic years, and it's just a little over 1,900 total hours. And that breaks down to about 700 hours of training in everything from theory, diagnosis, acupuncture, therapeutics, and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Plus some Western medicine, yeah? Well, I haven't even gotten there. Oh, okay. So 600 and almost 700 hours of clinic required, Mm -hmm. a little uh, between four and 500 hours of training in biomedicine. Oh, wow. Another 90 hours that is specifically in terms of ethics and communication and counseling and that kind of stuff. That's a, you know, close to 2,000 hour uh, acupuncture curriculum. That leads to a master's degree. And there are, of course, now in our field, as you know, Michael, there are also doctoral degrees that are offered. So you can add on further for those doctoral programs. But at the basic master's level degree, uh, which is which is generally what is required for state licensure. Let me be clear about that. So no, none of the states require doctoral training for licensure. But that's what you'd be looking at in terms of basic acupuncture training. So I'll just also throw in there, you can kind of add on to that if you're talking about somebody who's done a combined curriculum where they're studying herbs too. Mm-hmm. They're doing uh, an additional 450 hours that specifically relate to herbs. And they're doing a little bit more hours. They're doing a larger number of hours, both in clinical training, biomedical training. Like you bump up all the hours, so you get to just a little over 2,600 hours for any of the acupuncture herb combined curriculums. Right. And that's, that's a four academic year program. Now, for example, at Sion, we do that in three calendar years, but it's four academic years. So, right. Well, that's because you're trying to kill your students. Mm, well, I don't think so. <laughs> but my students might, might quarrel with me. But, but no, I, I think in, in, you know, Siam has been around since 1994. And, and we have talked with a lot of our students and graduates who said, you know, yeah, the program was really tough and it was hard to get through. But if you ask me if I wanted to spend an additional year, doing it, I'd say no. You know, I'd, I, I was happy to do it in three years, get out, get into practice, start doing that. So that's why we made that decision, yeah. not because we have any animosity towards our students. Well, I'm, I'm kind of joking being a, a, being a graduate of one of the early years. So we, you know, we were kind of the white mice. Exactly. And, and I can say this, as tough as Siam was, it's not nearly as tough as being in clinic with somebody. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. You know, I mean, that's really the gold standard, right? Yes. How can you be with your patients, especially in moments of difficulty? School is supposed to prepare you for that. 
Yeah, and that's why that's one of the reasons why, as you know, you know, we have we don't we don't have any clinical supervisors at Siam who have less than ten years of clinical experience in the field. So, because for us, Siam is focused on producing people who are going to be excellent practitioners, and that's that's the bottom line. If if it works in clinic, then it works, and that's really all there is to say. So. Okay, so that's for your basic, what would that be called, like a licensed acupuncturist if somebody was looking at, at a website and looking at someone's credential? Yes, yeah, so it could be, you know, and again, unfortunately, state by state, you're going to see different terms. So licensed acupuncturist, in, in Washington state, people might, we also have a designation that's an EAMP, which is an East Asian Medical Practitioner. I don't know. Or does your state use licensed acupuncturist? We use licensed acupuncturist for people that have had the kind of training that you just described. Yeah. So that's pretty common. I think licensed acupuncturist is fairly common. But it's not uh, – there are states where you will see other designations, unfortunately. If we move into the realm, there's basically – I think there are three main groups out there, sort of allied health – or other health professionals who offer – something related to acupuncture, and those would be medical doctors, chiropractors, and physical therapists, I think, the main folks, right? Yeah. I don't think physical therapists call it acupuncture, though. No, they refer to it as dry needling. Yeah, they've got their own language for it. That's a whole other conversation, which I'm going to completely avoid. That is a minefield that has no space between the minds. Fair enough. So tell us about doctors. What kind of acupuncture training might they have? So this is a tricky situation because obviously medical doctors have extensive training in physiology and anatomy and all the different things that they study. But in terms of specific acupuncture training, there is no specific regulation for them. And so what I just, just out of curiosity, I went onto one of the, the websites of the, one of the main organizations that does trainings for medical acupuncture and kind of they have a membership in their organization and that requires 220 hours of formal training. That's 120 hours of didactic and 100 hours of clinical training. And that's, that's what they require for membership to their organization. So, you know, in over the 20 years that I've, 20 plus years that I've been in this field, I have seen some completely wonderful medical doctors who do acupuncture who have actually decided to do full on acupuncture training. They have gone back to school, they have gotten an acupuncture degree just like any of my students have. And they do a completely integrated Western medicine and, and East Asian medicine clinic. And I think that is incredible for folks who have done that. And we've actually had quite a few medical doctors who have come through our program at Siam. Yeah, it's huge dedication. Absolutely. And, and I have an incredible amount of respect for the folks who, who choose to do that. The folks otherwise who are Western medical doctors but who want to have, they want to use acupuncture in their practice. And so they do some of these shorter courses. You know, I... I think it's a matter of that is going to be just a matter of how that individual person is, is doing their practice. I'm sure there are folks who do acupuncture just fine. 
but they just don't have the same number of hours of training as a fully trained acupuncturist in terms of their training in acupuncture and East Asian medicine. They have obviously lots of training in other things. So that's really the only number that I can give you is mm-hmm. it's that one. Well, could you see it almost a little bit like you've got people that are uh, emergency medical technicians, right? They're not like full MDs, but you know, they know a whole lot about a certain aspect mm-hmm. of conventional medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe there's some docs out there, some MDs. They've learned some very specific stuff with acupuncture that is germane to the kind of patients that they see. Right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, in terms of the chiropractors, they have a similar, again, they have another one of these, uh, an organization that is a voluntary organization for people who are chiropractors, but who want to sort of be a member of an organization that, that does this kind of chiropractic style of acupuncture. And they require 300 hours of training. It looks like, you know, their requirements are, it's again, it's a mix of some hands-on and some classroom training, but, but that's basically, so the MDs are 220 and the chiros are around 300 hours. Mm -hmm. So that is a lot different. And I'm going to stop short of, of making any kind of a value judgment about any of that. I'm just going to say those are the numbers that I can give you. And, and then, again, you know, you can, as a patient, you can ask about people's training and you can go and you can get a treatment and see what it's like. Yeah, so you see how you feel. Yeah, I couldn't find any specific information. I think the whole thing with the, with the physical therapists is is a little newer and there there were no clear criteria that I could find for membership in any kind of a physical therapy organization around acupuncture or dry needling or any of that stuff. So all right. Craig, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us before we wind this up? Well I think I, I think the one the you know when when you and I first started talking about doing this podcast, we sort of framed it from the perspective of how to go about choosing an acupuncturist and, and how to think about different people out there who are practicing and different training and all that kind of stuff. And I think the last thing that I would say maybe is just a, a restatement of something that I mentioned previously, which is I do think that people who are considering the possibility of receiving acupuncture as a treatment modality, that they should not be shy about asking their practitioner about their training, find out what kind of training did you do in herbs, what kind of training did you do in acupuncture, what kind of program did you go to, ask practitioners about what kinds of approaches do you use. Uh, I think those are all fair game and fair questions to ask, and I would hope that any practitioner who's out there would be happy to have that conversation and to share their perspective on how they practice medicine. And then again, even if somebody is super nice and super kind and is a really, you know, you enjoy talking with that person, that practitioner. I also think it's important to set clear treatment goals as a, both as a patient and that hopefully your practitioner is helping you to set reasonable and clear treatment goals. And then that's how you evaluate your treatment process. Am I getting better with the symptoms that I wanted to get help with? And if not, that's maybe time for a conversation with your practitioner or, you know, moving on to see somebody different. I think that it's important that patients get, keep that in mind as part of the whole process. 
That's all really helpful advice. Thank you so much for joining me here today and having this conversation. It's my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture. If so, please take a moment, click on the iTunes review button, and leave a review of the show. And be sure to tune in again next week. Thank you.